Hi there, I'm Lori Hellman, a mom to an incredible young adult son on the autism spectrum. My goal when creating the Living the Sky Life podcast three years ago was that the content of each episode bring hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways to each listener. The special needs parenting village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. If you haven't already, please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account. And let's keep the conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and written review and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in and subscribing to season three of Living the Sky Life. Hello, listeners, and welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Living the Sky Life. My guest today, Alex Philstein, is an award-winning inventor in Canada's energy sector whose innovations focus on emission-reducing technologies to achieve net-zero greenhouse gas emissions. Alex is the recipient of the 2018 Oil Week JWN Magazine Rising Star Award and the recipient of the prestigious 2019 Technical Achievement Alumni Award from the University of Calgary School of Engineering. Now, why is Alex on the guest? I'm clearly not talking about energy and gas emissions because that is completely over my head. Um, But along with all of his amazing accomplishments in his field of work, Alex lives in Calgary, Alberta, Canada with his wife and two young sons who are both on the autism spectrum. After his kid's diagnosis, Alex was diagnosed ASD Level 1, or Asperger's. He is an active volunteer in the autism community, administrator for the Autism Stories Group on Facebook, and he's passionate about sharing data related to the community to advance happier autism families. So please enjoy my very informative, I say that a lot, but it's true, I learn something from every single guest, and I hope you do too. Enjoy my conversation with Alex. So welcome back to Living the Sky Life podcast. My guest today is Alex Philstein. I have seen Alex all over social media and we've connected through various posts and things, but I've never really gotten the chance to know him and to hear his story. So I'm so excited that he um, welcomed my um, invite to the podcast. So welcome, Alex. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Laurie. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I, when I hear your name and see your posts, I always think that you are such an advocate for autism families and we can get into your um, page that you, that you are the administrator of in a minute or so, but I want to just kind of start from the beginning and kind of get, get to where you had the diagnosis for your two sons. um, And then you ultimately learned that you were on the spectrum as well. So how did all of that unfold for your family? Well, thanks for asking me this question. And again, thank you for having me at this podcast. I'm very excited about this. Um, My journey started, uh, so my son was born in 2010 and he was diagnosed at the beginning of 2015. And I'll just kind of describe where we're at with my son at that point in time and how the diagnosis takes place. So we essentially have a four-year-old boy uh, he was nonverbal at that point. Uh, he would just kind of jump on the couch and uh, all he would say is uh, he would make that sound. It sounds like taka, 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 taka. So that's what he would do. He would just jump on the couch and do the taka, 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 right? And um, he had all the other, obviously, like he would stack up toys. 
he will have very specific interests. He will have significant echolalia. So he would just like, uh, he would not talk to you, but he would just kind of repeat words he would hear on cartoons and stuff like that. But there wouldn't be any like context to it. Mm -hmm. And one of the big ones for us was uh, he had what, what it's called today. I didn't know back then, but it's called Pika. So mm -hmm. he would just like pick up like rocks and just eat them, which, which you know, for, for a parent, that could be an extremely traumatizing experience, right? So I'll just take you to the moment of the diagnosis. It was uh, February 2015, and we already had a small baby. So um, my second son, Michael. And uh, we're basically sitting in this room and the doctor walks in uh, and he basically asks us 11 questions, you know, and I'm kind of at that moment where, um, and, and I always think a little bit metaphorically. So I kind of envision that I'm obsessed with the Apollo program, the lunar landing program with the Apollo vehicles and uh, with those command modules and service modules. And so kind of like, it's almost like a countdown to me, like to the launch, like it's like 10, nine, eight, you know, you like, <laughs> I can see the fire, right? With those questions. And then um, my son, he wanted to go to the washroom. So I take him to the washroom. I kind of like, okay, I'm in denial of this entire thing. Like this is insane, right? So we come back and my wife, she's like, okay, so Noah was diagnosed. And I'm like, so, and, and I'll never forget it. Uh, she's like, he said the severe autism. And I'm like, well, what? So the doctor saw me almost like fainting. And he's like, no, no, it's more like moderate. Um, so that's, that was like the initial start for this journey, right? Mm -hmm. And then three years later, the baby that we had in the room during the diagnosis, he's been diagnosed with autism as well. But the response is absolutely different. In fact, we're like, oh, okay, sounds good. You know, we just uh, go to a restaurant and we're going to have a meal and um, basically we didn't mind it at all. We, we kind of knew exactly what was happening. And so, uh, back, back to the question was kind of like, what happened? I was the same person. Um, it's the same diagnosis. There was no difference in the way it was delivered to us, but the way I responded to it and the way we managed our family was extremely different. And so that was kind of what initiated my activities and in educating the community and kind of being that guy because I didn't see too many dads in the community mm -hmm. to say, you know what, first of all, you're not alone. And how about my experience second time will be your experience the first time? Because I'll never forget those years of like trying to even comprehend what was happening to us. Did um, uh, Noah and Michael present differently? Like um, when you watched Michael kind of grow up to the age of four, the same age as Noah when he was diagnosed, were they doing some of the same things that made you guys go, you know what, Michael might be on the spectrum too, or was well, the, it completely different? It was different, but it was a little bit of the, the same. So the autism spectrum is extremely heterogeneous. Uh, there's no child alike, you know, and one of the mm -hmm. things that I would say a friend that kind of, I never forgot how I felt about it is the people that say, oh, he doesn't look autistic or, Gosh. oh, I, I don't think that's, you know, and then I'm almost in a position to negotiate that. No, no, he is. I know. And you almost become defensive. Like, why are we even having this? It's like, it's a stupid, right? We have to prove it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, you know, and, and that's the thing. We, we're talking about an extremely heterogeneous uh, community, right? They presented some of the same elements when it comes to uh, speech delay. So, uh, so uh, you know, and, and that was kind of what, but it was very obvious that 
because we already knew some of the signs and, uh, you know, stacking toys, like making basically like different sequences and, and it's not like normal play with toys. It's mm -hmm. more like you, you just kind of like, uh, put them in a very specific order and you get very upset if uh, the order is changing or, you know, and um, obsession with routines and steaming. So my, my 11 year old son is, he's a very steamy boy. So he has this like um, a pipe cleaner thingy that he always holds in his hand. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll never forget the time where we just went to the park and I saw like a little branch and it looked like a little bit of uh, the pipe cleaner he holds now. And I just saw this branch and I just kind of was like, Oh, and I threw it in the river. And he got so upset. He was crying. He had this huge meltdown. For me, I just threw like a little stick in the <laughs> river. Yeah. For him, it was like the end of the world. And until today, he has a shape in his hand that he calls the manta shrimp because it kind of looks like a shrimp. It's made from pipe cleaner. And he always holds it and kind of steams with it. So, so that's kind of some of the experiences and the commonalities between them. What is their um, communication, communication and interaction like now um, as brothers? Do they have things that they enjoy doing together? Or they kind of do their own thing a little bit? Yeah, so a little bit of both. Uh, so again, it's over time, they kind of grew a little bit apart, but now they're almost like in each other's lives and they merge into this very unique way they, they live together. So they would... Um, let's say they'll watch like a YouTube video that somebody will say, Hey, welcome everyone. And today we're going to look at some toys. And, and so they're basically like, so they, they're both verbal now. And so what they do, they basically like mimic that, uh, you know, introduction to the cartoon and they will just kind of role play, but it's, it's very um, different from what a, a person would expect. Right. But, mm -hmm. you know, we will take the small wins, like whatever can. we can get, we will take those. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you said that they're both verbal now. It's just it's so much easier as a parent when they have, you know, at least some sort of communication that they can tell you what they want, what they need, uh, maybe not how yeah. they feel, but at least some sort of communication. So um, did that did did that come uh, through like therapies, a specific therapy that you guys used that was successful for you? So so they did receive some therapies and all the kind of typical uh you know, activities, but the more I educate myself about the community, the more I'm realizing this is a totally like random heterogeneous situation. Mm -hmm. There is no, all of those things can happen or it may not happen. And that's why I'm trying to educate myself and also educating the community about the actual numbers, because I think we have a lot of self-advocates in the community, which is great. In the same time, I feel like we we just don't quite understand our community because we, we don't know like what the numbers are and the numbers after are very confusing. And so because I'm somewhat obsessed about this topic now, I'm like really diving into it and I'm like looking at all those like trends and different ways and kind of bringing this data to the community to say, you know what, like the way you feel right now, that may not be the way you're going to feel in three, four or five years. Mm -hmm. And you should know that because maybe I'm saving you years of like, being anxious and stressed and you know but mm -hmm. i don't know if people quite connect with me <laughs> because we live in a world where like you put a meme or a funny picture and it's like you know it's the best experience but those are very serious topics and you know what i can do is just put it in the community but you know if people uh, may see it useful that's uh, up to them right yeah well and i i thought it was really interesting now you're in canada right 
Yeah, I live what? in Calgary, Alberta. Yeah. Okay. And um, you posted recently um, on the pages about this different states, the diagnosis per state, and where people were kind of moving away from based on resources. For me, I mean, I love that stuff. I mean, I would have loved it when my son was young too, but being that he's 18, that is the forefront of our focus right now. We are looking at every state, what every state offers for adults. Um, as far as day programs and just future living arrangements, all those kind of things, because the state that I'm currently in has nothing. I mean, the system is beyond broken um, and it's lacking in so many ways. So we are already planning like, okay, in three to four years, we're going to have to sell our house and we're going to move to whatever state it is. Um, but, you know, I don't want to go somewhere where the cases are going up and up and up or where everybody's moving because then he'll be on a list for 10 years and he'll be 30 before we get anything. It's just such a crapshoot, you know, of what to do. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I can see it in the numbers too. And mm -hmm. I will share just some stuff with you that um, I think will give the audience some perspective and maybe add some value. So the CDC, so basically the disease control, and I still don't understand why this whole ADDM network looks at it as a kind of disease concept, but this is for maybe different conversation. So about 350,000 people left California this year only, right? And right now you have about 350,000 autistic people, autistic kids living in California under the age of 18. So that, that's just the scale of things. So when ADDM network, they produce those numbers, it's kind of like a look back. So Right now we're in 2022, those numbers are from 2018. So what we witnessed because of COVID and other reasons, maybe some political reasons, people just moving states. But then there is this kind of like a cutoff section where, okay, we're gonna evaluate those children, who they are and the quantity. And we're gonna report those, but it's almost like three years and four years in delay. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that like, this could result in, in issues with services and maybe like, you, you have services, but now you, you have this population moving to the state, and then what happens to the services, right? And so there should be some kind of system where this information is being accounted for. And then things like GDP, where a state can offer certain services and maybe they don't have enough money to. So I think like our community needs to be educated on that. The one thing that really obvious to me, so I'm an engineer by profession, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love like the stock market and things like that, like training, anything to do with numbers. I just love it. Like sometimes I'll see a ticker and I can just stare for it for like an hour, <laughs> but, but, but I can, I don't do that because I have a job to do, but at the same time, you, you go on Bloomberg and you get educated on the market conditions and you go to CNBC and you see the numbers on the market activities in the same time in our community, such an important topic. And we don't have that communication where we know like, hey, what's happening today? What services are being eliminated? Who is doing this? Who is doing that, right? So people like you and me can, can have like this freedom to decide where we best position our children, right? Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating because we can only do so much. And so I focus on my own state and other families do the same thing. They look at what their state offers and what they don't offer. And then we have to do the research on our own. There's only a couple national organizations and I, those are skewed because the, i mean there's a whole other episode or 12 on that but um so i don't rely on them because 
I don't feel that that information is is truthful um, and is in our best interest. So you're right. I mean, we are just from the minute of diagnosis till you know the, our last day on this earth, we are constantly doing the research for our kids to make sure that they get everything that they need and you know that it's paid for somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not and, just and by you, us. <laughs> and you know, I always look at it from a perspective of. Um, so, you know, we, we cannot afford to complain about the current status. What we can do is change things and mm-hmm. make improvements in our community because our children, as you shared in some of your posts lately, we, they grow, right? I, I remember seeing a video where you're like, hey, Skylar is already 18. Like, mm-hmm. I can't believe it's happening, right? Time is, you know, and I still, I really connected with that post because we don't have time to think about, um, what you know what we wish we would have had or some kind of entity like we need to act and we need to help each other as a community to to do what's best for our children right because you want to look back and say hey you know i did my best right Mm -hmm. that's what i like so much about your advocacy page the autism stories page because like you said i mean you're throwing stuff out there some people it'll resonate with them and others it won't but that's i feel like our biggest mission those of us who choose to be vocal and do podcasts and do things like that. Um, it's to, that's where the awareness comes in. It's not just for other autism families. It's for people who don't live this life. And so they aren't aware that, you know, the funding is terrible where we are with regard to therapy reimbursements or things like that. It's just, there's so much to unpack and we can either sit in it alone and not tell anyone else or we can be extremely vocal about it and s- help other families and help the community help us because I can't do it by myself. I need legislators, yeah. which I'm meeting with them all the time. I, I'm just going to wherever I can to get someone to listen. So, yeah, and, and the way I look at it, this situation, it needs to be managed. So it cannot be a pro. <laughs> you know, like we, have, we have a lot of that anyway, but we have to be enabled to, as a community, to manage the situations. Mm-hmm. And I will just add even more. The heterogeneity in the percentages of population within the states is extremely different, too. Like in California, I remember, uh, you know, when my son was diagnosed back in 2015, that was the numbers were like one in 60, one in 70. I remember watching some interviews, like people would say, Can you believe? that it's one in 88. Can you believe it? Wow. Like it used to be like one in 500. Mm -hmm. And today in California, based on recent data, it's one in 26. Yeah. So one in 26. So in every classroom, there'll be a kid on the spectrum. So Mm -hmm. uh, national average in US is one in 44. That's 2.3% of the population that's going to grow up and be adults. And so I feel like even in this COVID environment and all of the things that are very much important and pressing, this, this issue is not being talked about. And then in 10, 15, 20 years, we will realize that, hey, you know, this like actually happened. This population exists. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about millions and millions of people that will be adult uh, autistics on the spectrum, right? Living in, in the U.S. So, um, so I feel it's important to communicate. And I think it's part of my message too that, you know, sometimes we'll say you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not mm-hmm. alone. But that kind of means more of a, from a, I can relate to you. You're not alone. I, I went, I went through that. When, when I say you're not alone, like you're literally not alone. Yeah. It's like, 
there's like millions of people like you yeah and millions of parents that rediscover that condition right mm -hmm. and they think it's rare and you and why is this happening to me but it's not that rare and it's not that new <laughs> yeah yep well and you're very open about being diagnosed later in life on the spectrum as well um i guess i mean i hear hear this all the time like either asperger's is a is a you know clinical term or no one uses it anymore i'm not even sure but um technically you have asperger's is that right um so so in canada we have diagnosis uh and this is another extremely fascinating <laughs> discussion because uh, there's this amazing book, it's called Asperger's Children, and I encourage everyone to read it. And there they basically talk about the history of like Asperger's and the experiences. Uh, I think like just to deviate from the controversial aspect of what was done back then, mm -hmm. um, our, our community is just kind of focused on saying, hey, those people are basically autistic. That's how we're going to classify them. Mm -hmm. But then if I look at the overall spectrum of experiences, this is an extremely heterogeneous community. And we don't have really like good terminology to say, hey, this is exactly like how we specify that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I my, in my personal view, I kind of, when I, when I talk about my experience, I say what people would normally understand for them, right? But I, I, the way I feel about this is that I see us more as individuals and kind of beyond the label, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, kind of looking back at like how our children are in the same, they're being basically placed in this like big, big uh, under the same umbrella, right? And so again, my message would be, it's an extremely heterogeneous community. I think in the future, there will be some changes the way we, we, the classification takes place because we already have like level one, level two, level three, and those are mainly associated with the challenges. Mm -hmm. And the way, the reason why I like it more is because people that need more support, they, they can get that support, right? But in the same time, it's uh, it's extremely difficult today to like say autism spectrum disorder. And now we don't even uh, use in the autistic community disorder, we say condition. So <laughs> autism spectrum condition, and that thing changes all the time. Yeah. But I think for a human brain, it's it's extremely easy to to kind of focus on those little things. My my focus is more on the needs of the families and the challenges we're having, like the practical implementation of services to be coupled with the challenges. What we call it, it becomes irrelevant, right? Like, right. So, so that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, and I, I agree with you on that. And it's so challenging um, to be a parent um, with a child on the spectrum because I feel like we're always being um, targeted by the words that we use. I agree with you. I am not a fan of labels. However, in order to explain the profound needs and the challenges that Skylar yeah. has, I have to use words like severe because in my experience of 18 years of this, it seems like when I, if I just say my son has autism, people are like, oh, like Rain Man, like, is he, yeah, you know, yeah, fanatical yeah. <laughs> about math? And is he really, is he a gifted pianist? Is he, you know, what is he yeah, a can savant he count cards? Yeah, yeah, and it's like, I mean, no, he actually needs help feeding. He needs help showering, dressing, all of those things. Um, so, and I've talked to many um, adult autistics and they're like, gosh, we hate when people say severe. We hate when people say, you know, high functioning, low functioning and all of that. I don't really know how else to explain the differences 
maybe not to people, it's not for people in the community, maybe it's for the outside, for them to understand Skylar's needs are much more significant in the fact of funding, support, services, all of that. It's not to say that somebody with high functioning autism doesn't need anything. They're fine. They can get jobs, but they don't need all that Skylar needs. They are able to apply for jobs in some cases because they're verbal and they can, you know, function in society with a little bit of, um, you know, adjustments to some things. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. We can't make everybody happy, but um, <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I just feel like I need to describe what's true for us. And if it's offensive to people, I guess, I mean, they can just not follow me, but I don't know how else yeah. to, to delicately it's... dance around those labels, you know? And, and as a parent, you, you shouldn't be in a position where you, you even deal with that. Like mm -hmm. you have enough on your plate where you're like, hey, I just want to help my son. I want to make sure, you, you know, as I look back, we have no regrets about anything we've done. Mm -hmm. and, and this will be a list of your concerns to think about like how somebody classified them in the past. Um, you know, it's interesting because that's also this, this kind of like, it goes to the other side too. For example, like Elon Musk last year went mm -hmm. to Saturday Night Live and like, I hey guys, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so I have Asperger's and did you think I'm going to be some kind of chill dude and not obsessed with what I do? And people can relate to that. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in the same time, if he was, say, if he was to say, hey, I'm autistic, it's like, oh, really? You don't look like autistic, right? Uh -huh. so, there's, yeah. so there's like this really complex ecosystem of labeling. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the solution is. I just know that the the parents and the children that that's kind of my focus to make sure that everybody's kind of healthy and yeah in the best way they can and communicating is is key yeah and we just do the best we can for our kids you know to your yeah. point though about elon um it also makes me think you know we sadly we see in social media all the time people who um can advocate for themselves i mean obviously my good friend and probably yours eileen goes through a lot um on social media, but um, you know, for people that can advocate for themselves and speak and say, hey, listen, I'm on the spectrum or whatever, sadly, sometimes it's used as a defense. Like if they do something wrong or something very inappropriate, they're like, well, I'm on the spectrum, so I didn't know. And that upsets me when people use autism to their advantage to say, well, I can't be held accountable for whatever I said or did because I'm on the spectrum and I, I don't understand. Well, if you're able to say I'm on the spectrum and I don't understand, you clearly understand. <laughs> like it, it shouldn't be used as a, as a get out of jail free card to label yourself as autistic. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's really, it's a fine line <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and again, it, it goes like for, for each person and mm -hmm. their challenges, it goes it's really applicable for, I think, most cases. But sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes if somebody like could be sarcastic with me, and I just can't read. Like I'm like I'm like, are you for real? Like, I, like we had this meeting, like this work meeting, and I was wearing a hat, and um, somebody making the joke is like, oh, where are you wearing a hat? Like why? And then I just remove the hat, right? It's like, oh, Alex, why did you do that? I'm like, well, didn't you say it's just removing hats? So it wasn't like super obvious to me that that was more of a joke. Often I'll, I'll just get the jokes and it will be fine. But sometimes it's like, well, how do I even explain this? Like, I really yeah. didn't read the, the scenario, right? But 
but this is more of a in a funny way it doesn't affect me by any means and people around me they they're very supportive and accepting that way so uh, <laughs> well, there's yeah. some funny things that come with it too that was kind of one of my questions for you too is that um i had actually the publisher of my book um her husband is um on the spectrum higher functioning if you want to use the label or whatever he's an engineer also um yeah. super super intelligent very very nice guy i had him on the podcast after I had his wife on the podcast, she's neurotypical. Um, and I was just asking her about um, her relationship with her husband and how sometimes communication can be, like you said, kind of matter of fact is the way he interprets things. And so she used the example um, on the episode of saying to him before she left the house, like, it'd sure be nice if somebody did the dishes, kind of being sarcastic. And then she left and she came <laughs> back and he didn't do them. And she's like, why didn't you do the dishes? I said, he goes, cause you didn't ask me to. She's like, I did. And she repeated what she said. And he goes, you said, it'd be nice if somebody did them. You didn't ask me to do them. I didn't get that from what you said. <laughs> she's like, oh my gosh, I have to be so literal with him. And he said the same thing when he was on, when I brought it up to him and he's like, yeah, she didn't directly ask me. I didn't know what she was saying. Do you find that you and your wife, like when you first dated, maybe it, it it didn't hit you then, but it hits you now that you kind of understand the diagnosis. Um, it's some of the things she might have said or the way you guys parent is different. Anything like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like for me, this is extremely applicable because I'm an extremely literal guy. <laughs> and I would just I would just say things like literally like so. So I, I think I understand sarcasm at this point, like because over time you just you you know but sometimes you know and, and the phrase i like to use for this is like you're blind to your blindness you you're just not even aware that it's a thing like it, it just happened to you and you just assume you know but then um what i learned after my diagnosis is that there's like managing you can manage the the situation you can like kind of hedge your risks that this could ever happen so often i would just ask my wife hey do you need help with anything and it's like okay and i, I will do the dishes to avoid any miscommunication issues but uh yeah and i think you know if we look at the literal aspect and and the engineers of us that work in the in the, you know, an important projects i think that's kind of what benefits us to in in the workplace mm -hmm. and that creates extremely loyal employees extremely committed employees and then you don't just like walk away from something that's hard you always compute you always kind of you're in that iterative loop when you want to converge to a solution, and that's probably going to be the best solution that's possible. Yeah. And for those of us that can communicate what was done, many people think that what we do is brilliant, even though it's not really obvious to us, right? Mm -hmm. So do you find that with work too, like social interaction? Um, do people at work know, I guess, that you are on the spectrum? Or is that not, because that's not something he wanted to share. Um, he never told anybody at work because I, I don't know why he has his own reasons but he's like you know I do a really good job and that doesn't matter that shouldn't matter it doesn't affect anything and if I don't get a joke I just kind of walk walk away and <laughs> in my own way and I don't really let on that I don't understand you know, you know I uh, and I talk about this with my wife I, so I decided to share this and and the reason why is because of my experience with my two children. I was in a very unique position where both of my kids were diagnosed. And I saw what happened to me the first time, me emotionally, right? And mm -hmm. I'm kind of 
it's not just me about me, it's about our family, but I'm just speaking from my experience. And then what happened the second time when my son was diagnosed. Then I started volunteering and I think you and me were met uh, through Coop's troops, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I was one of the guys that was trying to launch the Zooms for dads. Mm-hmm. And so when we started helping those dads, it was very clear to me that I have to be really open about my experiences because my goal was to avoid for them to experience what I experienced the first time in a way. And, and I could, and I decided I will just be open in social media, but you cannot be like, you know, open on social media, but also like at work, you kind of hiding. So mm-hmm. I, I just decided like, I can't do that. I have to be really open about who I am. Uh, the other reason was, is that we have significant uh, big movements in the, in the past decade when it comes to women at workplace, which is a very important initiative. So equal rights, equal pay. It, it's now it's a little, well, it's not funny. None of it is funny, but right now it's even funny to think about it. It's, it's a thing, right? Like yeah. women cannot get paid as much yeah, as men. Like it, it should even be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have this like huge movement now where, where this is what's happening. Then we had another movement, the Me Too movement, the people of color, right? So integration of people of color in the workplace, which is extremely important, right? In the same time, you know, I heard somebody speak about we need like visual representation of um, of minorities, let's say in management or, you know, and then I was thinking about our community, you know, we're, we're not like, it's not visually obvious who like what challenges you have Mm -hmm. in the same time I want for selfish reasons. I want my son to have opportunities, my sons to have opportunities in the future. I want our children in our community to have the opportunities, but they're not necessarily always uh, a visual minority. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what can I do to communicate that it's not only about those important topics, which are important. It's also, it's also about the, the minorities that don't have visual differences, but they're neurodivergent, right? Yeah. And so going back to your question, that that's why I, I felt like I have to be extremely open about that because I think it's part of my mission to to say, you know what, like we, we do have people that are different that you cannot visually see. Yeah, and I think that's so important and, and why you and me and so many other people share every time I see a story about uh, someone on the spectrum doing something amazing at work. Like I'm sure you saw the the story recently about the um, young girl who worked at McDonald's and the the autistic um, young adult was choking in the back seat and she, you know, caught it and jumped to action and um, whatever. I mean, we just see things all the time and that are positive about people on the spectrum in the workplace and not many get a chance because for whatever reason, at, at several interviews, they are, you know, asked that question or they mention something and then they're immediately turned away or not given the opportunity. And like you said earlier, I have found that the people that I know that have jobs that are on the spectrum are the most punctual people, the most thorough people. They won't leave until the job is done, even though the time clock says it's time to, to stop. They are the most dedicated employees that an employer could find. And I don't know why they're not given a chance. They should be. Yeah. And, and once you develop that intense interest, you, you just like fully committed to it. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's aligned with your work, then you're like, <laughs> you just work in full time basically for your entire life and you enjoy it too because mm-hmm. you, you, you get fulfilled by 
by the, you know, kind of computational aspect in, in your brain by something that stimulates you and allows you to, to, to be part of something that you really enjoy. So yeah, special interest and special, uh, it's, it's very common in the, on the spectrum for mm -hmm. people, but you know, again, every person is different. And, but once you make that connection, it, it's, it's very powerful. What are your boys uh, love and are they kind of gravitating towards any one thing that you're like, Ooh, this could be interesting. One's really artistic. One's really, you know, into a certain superhero, whatever, what is it that they enjoy that makes them happy? Yeah, I think like for us right now, it's a journey to make sure that they meet. Um, well, my 11 year old, he's a little behind on the grade level. Well, mm -hmm. not a little, like a couple of years. So we, we're trying to integrate ways that he can learn, maybe catch up with the grade level, right? Um, Michael, he is seventh. He, he's, uh, he's doing his best. I mean, considering we have like COVID and, um, you know, it, it's challenging for everyone. I, I can't tell you right now that they have that thing, that that's their thing. Uh, I think we're on the journey maybe to discovering what, what's the thing. But I, I watched um, Temple Grandin's presentation a couple of years ago. I was right there in the front row, uh, took some pictures. And so I really connected with her message when it comes to um, pivoting and kind of trying things, not yes. just being fixated on and that's very common mistakes for parents because they're trying to force it. They're like, it has to happen. This yeah. is the right way. You're not doing it the right way. You know, stop doing it. Stop this. Stop that. Do it the right way. But the, the solution is not that. It's to allow it to see what works and assigning more weight to what works versus what doesn't work and use a very specific phased approach. And, you know, looping back to our conversation from when I started, remember I was talking about the Apollo rocket and the moon landings. So I just happened to know like a lot about the patents in the program. I, I don't know why, but I just, I'll do it for fun. <laughs> and also how it was done. Because a lot of us are thinking about like Neil, Neil Armstrong just stepping on the moon. But reality is in, so in 1969, July 20th, he stepped on the moon. But nobody thinks about all the phases that the program evolved to, to get to that point. In January 1967, Apollo 1 crew vanished in a fire on the ground in Florida, not in some kind of space. And so they, they were iterating, they were phasing into things, they were optimizing things that worked and letting go of things that didn't work and then and kind of pushing forward on what's possible. For example, Apollo 8, it went around the moon in Christmas 1968 they didn't even have a command uh, a lunar module to land on the moon. They used like a weight to put in, but that weight was enough to circle around the moon and to reach that mission. And so if there was kind of a message to parents, I would say that phase into things, like don't force anything, allow things to change and evolve over time. And maybe that will result in your special like Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon moment. <laughs> uh, but, but it's not very clear initially when it starts, right? It allows a lot of iterations and phased approach um, and never forcing, never like getting stressed over situations. That was my experience. Well, and I was going to ask you that question too, like what advice you would give, you know, specifically dad, since I know you did that Zoom for a while and, you know, connected yeah. with a lot of dads. Is there anything that came out of those discussions um, for moms or dads that you um, would absolutely recommend or suggest just from your own experiences that you've gone through too? 
Yeah, what was very unique about the Zooms is, and it became only obvious when we were doing it, is that we all in one way or another on a, on a very similar journey. And it's not obvious to us that somebody walked the trail in the snow and kind of did the, <laughs> the, the journey before us. We don't have connection to those people. We don't know who these people are. And so what was very clear to me is that for example, we'll have a person saying, hey, uh, you know, my kid is like pooped all over the place, you know, very uncomfortable conversations, right? Mm -hmm. And then two weeks later, he would say, hey, he doesn't do that anymore. Like we're using this diaper and that's what worked for us and I'm better now. And then I see another dad that's going to that experience that this first dad went like three weeks before. And I'm like, hey, wait a second, but you shared with us three years, three weeks ago that that was your current standing. And so you see like, that's maybe you in the future. We, we don't know if it's you, but why don't you guys like connect and, you know, see what worked for you. And, and so I find like with, with social media and all of those ways to communicate, we can find ways to learn from each other mm -hmm. and kind of hold each other by hand. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a lonely journey through the woods and kind of <laughs> discovering like how scary it can be. It can be a journey where you, uh, open yourself to the community and kind of give to the community, but also take a lot, right? So that's the one big thing I will suggest to parents. Uh, connect with others, learn from others, see if you can find ways where you can save time, anxiety, stress, to to see how that journey evolved. Learn from others' mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. um, get advice. So So that's a big one for me. I don't think it's obvious to parents when they get when the kid get diagnosed, the initial state of the shock is is so surreal that mm -hmm. it takes like a lot of time to even like get out of that denial phase. And then you have this generation like the parents, the grandparents, and the great great parents, and they will say, "No, no, everything is good. Uh, he doesn't look autistic, so you you shouldn't worry about. We we don't have that gene in our family. We mm -hmm. our family we we don't have that. So I don't know where it came from. There's the search and like. Oh, did it come from that side or that side? Or, you know, it's like always looking like to to find a direction. I'm not saying it's for every family, but often it happens. Mm -hmm. That's what I see online. But this is not productive. It doesn't help the kid. It doesn't help you, right? Yeah. It's best to align yourself with people like you that can help. And whatever I post on social media, it's not for everyone, but it is for someone. Mm -hmm. And that, And that's been kind of my guiding light to... To say, okay, maybe I'll put there, but maybe it will have help one person, maybe two people. It doesn't have to help everyone, right? Yeah. So, so keep, keep. I'm really supportive of what you do, and your journey, and uh, I think it's really important to continue uh, communicating about our experiences because people will learn from this, and they, they their life will be better and happier. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there's any way, reason that anyone needs to just kind of be on an island and isolate themselves after a diagnosis. Like you said, I, people need their own time to process, but um, there are so many of us out here at different stages and, and we all agree. Each kid is unique with their um, you know, diagnosis and their experiences and their just everything about them. But if I can at least say, you know, we tried hippotherapy. Um, it did this, it didn't do this for us, but you try it. Maybe I can at least give you all of the bells and whistles and all the details. And then you decide if you want to try it or not try it. But my thing when Skylar was diagnosed so long ago is that 
I didn't, I'd never heard of any of these things. The first time was the first time. So I didn't know what hippotherapy was. And somehow I stumbled upon it on my own. I didn't know what a Dan doctor was at the time. I didn't know just half of the things that I figured out on my own. So I want to save a family from digging through WebMD and all this research when you have a wealth of parents out here living this daily that can say, you know, this was our side effect with this medication. Just be careful. It might not happen to you, but at least, you know, be looking for this. So um, I think that's excellent advice. And I love that you and a handful of other dads that I'm connected with are speaking out from a dad's perspective. We hear moms rattling on like me all the time, <laughs> but we very yeah. rarely hear dads say, this was hard on me to be the father of boys and kind of have to put aside some of the things that I planned and expected to do with them you know, maybe for a few years from now, instead of when they were five. So to be honest about that, that's hard. Yeah, I don't think we, we cannot afford not, not, not do it. We, mm-hmm. we like those of us who are comfortable with sharing, we have to, because mm-hmm. the divorce rate in the, in, in the, I think in the world is like 50%, right? Mm-hmm. So half of the people that get married today will not be married in like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So this is the starting point, but I don't know what it is in the, in our community. I hear like 80%, 75%. I assume with anxiety and stress, it kind of adds to the mm-hmm. to, to the issues, right? And so at the time when your child needs the most attention, the most support, to be understood, to be accepted, a lot of parents go through that kind of internal collision in their marriage, right? And, and so for those of us, we can communicate and say, hey, it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, understand the numbers, understand your situation. This is not rare. This is not like super, super abnormal. There mm-hmm. are other ways to, to deal with this. You, if we can communicate that, maybe we can save families. Maybe we can help people. So that's just yeah. kind of how I see it. Uh, from that side also, wh- what do we have today? We have one in four, basically it's boys, right? So mm-hmm. so 20% are girls on the spectrum, 80% are boys. Those boys will grow up being an adult man. And we both agree that autism wasn't just created last year or <laughs> even 20 years. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so we have generations of adults now that are on the spectrum, that some of them are dads, and they have no idea. And, and because they have very fixated interests and they're organized and everything has to be in a certain way, and then this happens. Like, my kid is being diagnosed with something. Like mm-hmm. this is an event for, for you if you're on the spectrum and you don't connect with it. Like you, it's like a meteorite that just lands on your head. You, you don't know what to do. So if we can help those people and make it a little bit easier, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's important. And, yeah. and just to finalize my thought, I think we need to look beyond the label uh, and see those people, everyone, our children, everyone in the community as individuals. I think in the future, uh, this will happen. But today we, we're forced to use, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, say autistic or uh, severe or high functioning or low, like all of the things we don't find even even like appropriate anymore. But I I don't know how else to kind of classify because, because you have to communicate your experience to get the support in it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's the, the hard part is on the one hand, when I talk to other people, I'm always singing his praises and saying all the things he can do, but then on paperwork for insurance or services and support, I have to paint the worst picture so that they're like, oh, wow. Okay. I guess he does need 40 hours of therapy or whatever (laughs) a month. You know, I just, 
hope that he never sees that I've had to write these things uh, about him because that's not how I feel about him, but they won't, you know, if, if you, if you paint a rosy picture and like, yeah, he's really making a huge advancements, they'll still say, well, then he doesn't need all of that. He's fine. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's never ending battle, but, um, I just, I love your openness and your mission to really connect families and communities and people and just really make this, you know, autism is a pretty much a household term anymore. It's not a scarlet letter. It's not like our children are, you know, should be banished to an island because they're not functioning in society. I just, I want to change that so badly. That's my mission. So I'm right alongside of you. It, <laughs> I think it's a great one. And and the numbers we, we see today from, from our communities are such that th this condition will have to be normalized. I don't know if that's even the right word mm -hmm. for that, but the communities of tomorrow, of the next generations, they will see that there's a lot of people like your children, like my children. And so so what do we do? We have to advance those education systems. We have to communicate on the community. So future generations can be like, oh, you're artistic. That's great. Let's play, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't want to do this? You Is the sun is, uh, you know, is in your face? Sit in the shade. It's okay. We, I don't have to force you to, you know, for example, for me, I'm very sensitive to sun. So when I see people tanning on the beach, I think like I, I have almost like an experience that their skin is like peeling off, right? Oh. Like it's like, yeah. how can you even like, tanning and you enjoying this right so i'll always be in the shade but uh, you see if we're able to to communicate our experience to neurotypical community then people maybe can accept us in the future and be mm -hmm. be cool with our existence next to neurotypical communities yeah appreciate each other's uniqueness right that's right yeah <laughs> i think that's the, beyond the beyond the labels yes. beyond the labels beyond the labels well alex thank you so much i'm so glad i got a chance to get to know you a little bit better and we'll continue to follow each other and communicate um that if there's anything yeah, i sure. could ever do for you you let me know and um thanks again for your time i really appreciate it yeah and thank you for this opportunity appreciate it okay perfect i hope you enjoyed this episode of living the sky life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon if you haven't already Please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.